The following program is a podcast1.com production. Let's play. No, 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 no. I am not doing another show on Donald Trump. No, sir, 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 sir. Not that I couldn't, because there was another, I don't want to say firestorm or shitstorm, because... It certainly wasn't. It didn't make the mainstream television, you know, rise above the, the mark of, of, you know, what makes the cut for a Donald Trump story. But certainly it, there was a lot of coverage of a, and I'm not talking about it. I'm just giving you the background for not talking about it. But um, there was a lot of coverage on an interview I did in Canada. You know, you're up here in Canada and you think, you know, you're, you're just out of the spotlight, so to speak. But in the world of social media, in the world of Internet uh, coverage, it, there are no boundaries anymore, which is totally cool and all that. But you don't realize just how far-reaching the tiniest mouse fart can be. And I was doing, uh, I did an interview this week, and every interview winds up asking me about my relationship with Donald Trump, and we're not going to take it. And uh, an interview on a station called Q which I didn't realize was NPR, and NPR is apparently, is it international? Apparently it is, on national public radio. Um, My response wound up being picked up by media all over the world. The media is so Trump-hungry, it is mystifying, mystifying. You know, if it bleeds, it leads. The man hasn't spent a dollar on his campaign, a dollar on advertising, a dollar on promotion. He is a a, a genius when it comes to getting attention. We all could learn marketing lessons. I certainly could. That's what I'm going to get to in a little while. Uh, But, yeah, so I'm sure there will be... I'm pretty sure there will be other opportunities to speak about Donald Trump before the election. No, as a matter of fact, I can guarantee, I can guarantee there will be another Donald Trump uh, episode by popular demand. And pretty much there's popular demand right now. But that said, I don't think on this podcast, it's interesting because I've spoken about Donald Trump at length on this podcast, and nobody's in the media has picked up on that. They're not paying attention to that. So the information that they have latched onto, the media, was something that I, you guys knew, I'd spoken to you at length about in past podcasts, yet this was new news this week. But I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about Donald Trump this week because that's not what I'm about. It reminds me of when 
I went to Washington in the 80s and testified before Congress. Post-testifying, the media was up my ass. Everywhere I went, they wanted to talk to me about it. They wanted to keep the dialogue going, keep the story going, keep the conflict going, keep keep the, the you know, the press. They're, they're desperate for a story. But you'll notice when real news happens, Trump drops out of the spotlight. And that's like that with anything. Who do I remember a, few, a number of years ago? Imus. Don Imus. Remember he, he referred to the um, uh, basketball players, they were a black team, as being nappy-headed. And there was a firestorm. I mean, it made Time Magazine, I believe the cover, it was for about two weeks. It was insane what was going on. And then I don't remember what the news story was, but something real happened, something serious, something significant, and and Don Imus was gone. Don Imus was gone from the news. So basically the news is looking for, and this isn't isn't information that you don't know, the most sensational story they can find. And as long as Donald Trump provides that, and he's a master. I've told you before, uh uh-oh, I'm talking about Donald Trump. No, it's not going to be one of those shows, I promise you. But I've told you before that the Donald Trump that the public sees is not the Donald Trump I know. It's not my Donald Trump. And he is manipulating the masses, manipulating the press. He is a mastermind at doing that. And everybody is just falling in line, even me. But, you know, we're kind of being forced. Our hands, you know, I mean, some of us, our hand is being forced to speak on it and expound on it. But it is the topic du jour. Well, that means of the day. I think it's a topic of the year. I mean, he was in the running for being Time Magazine's Man of the Year. Holy crap. Even though that, that you know, illustrious title has gone to Adolf Hitler and uh, AIDS, you know, it's gone to some pretty interesting things. So it's not necessarily meaning that the great uh, things or great people, it means just that they've had, uh, they've, cause the most conversation or affected people the most or whatever. So anyway, but I'm not going to talk about Donald Trump. What I am going to talk about is my musical up in, all right, so stop turning off the podcast. Let me finish. All right, easy, easy with the finger there. Talk about the rock and roll Christmas tale, but not about, I like to relate everything to your journey. And I'm very big on pointing out that we're not so different. Our job descriptions may be different. Our circles may be different. You know, our outreach and our influences or whatever you want to say may be different, our sphere of influence. But if you break it down to its basic, its basic parts, we can, we're, it's very similar. And in my book, Shut Up and Give Me the Mic, have you read it? It's still available. I wrote myself. I'm going to keep telling you until you read it. Um, that's what I did with my story was show you where the lessons, the life lessons, I call them, I learned how they apply to anybody's life and anybody's journey. And that's what I'm trying to do to impart information to you, to share information. And, 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 you know, sometimes it's learned. Other times it's by just saying, hey, this is happening to me. Can you relate to this? So it isn't so much sage advice or, you know, or some Yoda-like uh, lessons here. Sometimes just like, hey, can you see the similarities in what you're going through in what I'm going through, and maybe there's something to be taken from this experience. You know, there's a you know, there's old saying, um, "Success leaves clues." Uh, and you know, and, and I've often said, you know, it's better and easier to stand to watch somebody playing uh, a video game and watch them play. Back in the day, before you had the video console in your house, B and the D, because I'm old. 
Uh, there was no, you know, there was ColecoVision. Oh, my God, ColecoVision? Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Activision? There were these early consoles. Anybody remember um, Duck Hunt? I'm old! It's two I'm olds in uh, less than 60 seconds. Um, you know, you, you, that was the only real games at home. The, to play the really cool games, you had to go to an arcade or to a, you know, a nightclub or a bar or someplace where they had restaurants, and you pumped quarters. Quarters into the game. It cost money. And the fool would walk up to a game cold, maybe try to read the cryptic uh, you know, instructions that they flashed on the screen before you played, and then waste bank money, tons, trying to figure the game out, where the smart guy would stand and watch someone who had figured it out, study their movements, study their actions, study what they did, then start playing. You save a shitload of money. And you spend a lot more time on the game. So with that in mind, uh, success leaves clues, but failure leaves clues too. In all honesty, in life, you learn more from mistakes than you do from your successes. You know, a win is just like, hey, one, everything went cool, I'm great, whatever, whatever, you know. But when you fuck up, that's where you, if you're smart, you stop and look and examine and figure out what the hell went wrong. So by sharing this journey of the rock and roll Christmas tale of me deciding to write a musical with you, I'm hoping you can see in that story a possible, either something that you're dealing with or take some inspiration and Watching the guy play the video games, you know, say, uh, oh, you know, I'm doing something and, hey, I'm not going to make that mistake that D made. Because why should you? Why should you? So as I sit here with my head in the cone of silence, uh, that's a Mac, that's a Get Smart reference. Here it comes, people. I'm old. And who remembers Get Smart? 1960s television show. Funny as fuck. Created by Buck Henry and um, and and um, oh man, I'm I'm blanking out. Is that Mel Brooks? Mel Brooks, Buck Henry. Some of you may remember from early Saturday Night Live. I'm old. I'm... All right, I got. I don't know uh, who my audience is here, but I've got so many ancient references uh, that I'm making here. But anyway, uh, yeah, the code of sounds. I told you last week that this is foam, um, foam cone that I've got my head in as I speak to you on the show, and it's where I keep my head for an hour in the darkness, the only light coming from my stopwatch. But it's particularly hot in here today because the weather is bizarrely warm where it shouldn't be and cold where it shouldn't be. You know, um, in, I'm up in Canada, and by this time of year, people are buried in snow, and it's in the effing 50s today, not complaining. But meanwhile, my wife's out visiting my kids and grandkids out in California, and she's she's freezing. I said, how cold is it? She says, 50s. I said, well, you were just in Canada, and you were saying it was warm. She said, well, I guess it's the mindset. You know, you figure in Canada it's going to be freezing, so it's in the 50s. You're like, hey, it's a nice warm day. But you go out to L.A., and you think it's going to be warm, and it's the 50s, and you go, and you got gloves on. I guess it's all a matter of perspective. But anyway, the point being, I'm kind of roasting in the cone of silence here. I'm suffering for you. I'm suffering for my art. I'm suffering to bring you these riveting tales. Uh, this one will be about success and failure in combination. Yes, it is, pos- it is possible to achieve both simultaneously. It is possible to win and lose. And if you haven't discovered that in life already, um, you will soon enough because that is life. Life gives and life takes away. So uh, I'm going to share that story with you. You know, people have told me that I could sell a $3 bill, that I'm an amazing salesman, and I could convince anybody of anything. To which I reply, 
only if I believe, truly believe, the $3 bill is real. I'm a terrible salesman, but I can sell what I believe in. If I have a used car, for example, and it's got a bad transmission, I can't pretend it doesn't. I'm going to confess. <laughs> confess! Confess! I'm going to tell you the God's honest truth because I can't, I don't believe in that car. I can't believe in that car. I can't sell something I don't believe in. I can't sell a $3 bill unless I believe it's a $3 bill. And that's why I'm so good at promoting true car because I believe this is an awesome thing. And I believe as a non-salesman, because I'm not a salesman, we are at a disadvantage against the pros. When a pro is pitching us, and I'll tell you what, I don't know, do they really believe in the product they're selling? Well, if you move from company to company to company and property to property to property like my brother does, the salesman, I can't believe you truly believe in the product. I believe it's just what you do for a living. So you're going into an auto dealer store, you're going to buy a car, you're going up against professionals who know how to convince you to buy things you don't want to buy. And I've talked about this before. How many times have you gotten a car? How many times have you bought additional protection on that car or options you didn't want? Oh, you can't get that option unless you buy the entire option package. It's a pile of crap. They know it. We don't. We find out later. I feel terrible about it. Not anymore with TrueCar. Now with TrueCar, you can go online. You can find out what everybody's paying. You can find out what the real fair price is on a new car via TrueCar. Now with TrueCar, you can see what others in your area have paid for the same car you're looking for, which helps you determine a fair price. Then there's no regret. You get a guaranteed savings certificate from a TrueCar certified dealer, and your savings will be honored by a TrueCar certified dealer without the need to negotiate. No salesman jumping you as you walk in. Can I? I help you? Oh, oh, no, 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 no. You'll already know what you're paying for the car when you go to the True Car Certified Dealer. And True Car users save an average of $3,221 off MSRP. That's bank, people. That's money. No hassles, no headaches. It's how car buying was always meant to be. And over 2 million cars have been sold by the True Car Certified Dealer Network. And there are over 10,000 dealers in the True Car Certified Dealer Network. And it's growing. You will work directly with a True Car Certified Dealer contact. Look, visit TrueCar.com or Download the True Car app and start saving. True Car, never overpay. So, the rock and roll Christmas tale. Some of you know the history of it. Uh, I'm thinking most of you don't. But... There's a long road to having the show in a theater, performing for live audiences, eight shows a week. And it started with the tw- a Twisted Christmas album by Twisted Sister. The surprise success of the a Twisted Christmas record, and for those of you who don't know it, uh, it's uh, Twisted Sister decided to do rocked out, heavy, 80s heavy uh, versions of classic Christmas songs. So we did White Christmas, we did Silver Bells, we did uh, Let It Snow, uh, I Saw Mommy Kissing Santa Claus, everything done metal style. And although we were warned by many that it would be the death of our band, to which I responded, we're an, old, we're an oldies act that doesn't get played on, barely gets played on the radio, doesn't get any video coverage, doesn't put out new music. We're just doing retro shows. What career are we killing? But we decided to, you know, and it was the fun of it. It was, the appeal was, hey, this is kind of a fun idea. And I always thought that there was a place for some rocked out Christmas. My favorite Christmas album is the Phil Spector Christmas album, which is rocked out Christmas songs. But that was done in the 50s and 60s. So it had been a long time since anybody had done some real rock Christmas songs. And Twisted Sister took it amongst upon themselves, and we did it, and it was a successful record. One of our best-selling records. It continues to sell every year, and for many people, it's become part of their you know, holiday sampling of records. Because you've got every kind of Christmas music out there. You know, you've got traditional, you've got, you know, Jazz, you got folk, you've got classical, you've got Euro pop disco. 
So there's a place in there for some rocked out Christmas songs, and Twisted Sister did it. But the success of that record and some live shows we did, some Christmas shows we did, got me thinking, and I came up with a really good idea for a premise, which I won't mention because it is the it is the surprise um, in my Rock and Roll Christmas tale, the surprise ending. But I, I came up with a premise, and I came up with the idea of writing a concept album for Twisted Sister. And let's see, Twisted Christmas came out in 2006. So I'm guessing it's around 2008. We've been doing the record for a couple of years. We've seen the success of it. Around that time, I get the idea to write a concept album. And the idea was that we take Twisted Sister songs, Christmas songs from the Twisted Christmas album, and new material uh, and and Twisted Sister would, in this con- on this concert album, like in The Wall, portray a fictitious band, a struggling fictitious band based on our characters, based on our life experience, a lot of truth in the original story. Uh, and we would release a record that we would go out and perform this holiday tale for rock audiences in a concert environment. And there involves some acting in it. And the parts, you know, since I have the most acting experience, AJ, may he rest in peace, had the second most. The other guys had little, had none. The parts were written so that they, you know, the, the heavy lifting, as they say, fell on my shoulders and a little bit on AJ's. And the other guys just had some easy lines. But there was going to be a story. And me and Eddie Ojeda wrote about... Six or eight new songs. The first new Twisted Sister music in uh, in the in a very long time. And interestingly, uh, since the story was about a band who sells their souls for rock and roll, but find the magic of Christmas instead, all the songs that we wrote were hell and uh, Satan. Uh, centric, which was very odd for Twisted Sister because we never write. I never wrote songs about that stuff, but it played to the storyline that all these new songs were referencing the, uh, the one of the songs that is, is actually still in the show is called "Raise Some Hell." There's another song, the most depressing song in the history of songs, called "Death May Be Your Santa Claus." The lyrics of the song would actually make you commit suicide. Oh my God, I outdid myself with writing a depressing song. Somebody's trying to call me on my stopwatch, which is my iPhone, uh, and I'm not going to interrupt this for, this broadcast to speak to my wife. See see, see where the importance is? See how, how high you rank in the hierarchy here? So we wrote all these songs, and I had written the script for this concept album. And, you know, and... Now it's 2010, and I have been asked to be in Rock of Ages, and I play the part of Dennis Dupree on Broadway in Rock of Ages, and I take the opportunity to have my director, Adam Hunter, take a look at my story, at my script. And I said, dude, you know, take a red pen to it. I've written screenplays. I've written television shows. Um, I've sold some things. I've had you know a movie produced, but you know I'm new to this world. Give me your notes because you know a musical, and it wasn't a musical; it was a concept album, but it was a music story driven by music. I knew you know I was an I was a newbie. I was an amateur. So Adam takes the script, comes back two days later, and he goes, "Dude, this is amazing. This is a musical." And I want to direct it. And I looked at him here. I'm expecting, you know, uh, some harsh notes and a, a form of rejection. And instead, he comes back and tells me, I'm wasting my time with this as a concept album. It needs to be rewritten as a musical. And I looked at him and I said, you really think so? He said, absolutely. It's fresh. It's exciting. This could be great. 
And I said, well, if you'll take this journey with me, because I really like that and we really hit it off in doing Rock of Ages. If you'll take the journey with me and be my Sherpa guide, I will go down this path. And trust me, and this is what I want to relate to you. I've said it before. Everybody has opportunities every day. Big ones, little ones, small ones. Well, that's little. It's kind of redundant. But you know what I mean. Make a left. Make a right. Make this choice. Make that choice. And sometimes they're big ones. But we are fearful. I always was. Thank you, Tony Robbins, for getting me rid of getting that out of my system. But I was fearful of doing something that I didn't know. I was fearful of the unknown. I was fearful of taking a chance. And a major thing for me in my my comeback, if you want to call it that, my reinvention, the reinvention of Dee Snyder, was to just say yes. And I've told you this before. Say yes, figure it out later. An opportunity arises, say yes. Trust that you are smart enough and talented enough. Or that if you're neither, that you're wise enough to find people who can help you with it. You know, being a good manager is really a ma- is really a matter of not doing everything yourself, but knowing who to get to do the job, who the right person to call for the job, who to assign the responsibility to. That's a good manager. You can't do it all yourself, which I certainly would soon find out. And something I thought in the past, during the day, early days of Twisted, that I could. That I would design the stage show and I would, you know, come up, write all the songs and, you know... That with Suzette's help, but see, I couldn't do it all myself. But I had the basic ideas, and then Suzette would, would, um, you know, would 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 put them into style terms for me. But I knew now knew okay, you don't have to do everything yourself, and just say yes, take a damn chance. So I said yes. I had a really great experience on Broadway doing Rock of Ages. I really liked the theater experience. I liked the familiness of the cast, the relationships that developed. Um, and I said, let's do it. So that's now January of 2011. I start rewriting this under Adam Hunter's guidance as a, a straight-up musical. And we proceed down that road. And over the course of a year, we whip it into solid shape. Shape where it's ready to be presented for the next step. And that is find producers, find investors, find someone who will fund this thing. Because I don't have the money to do it. And it takes a lot of money to launch these things. It is not a, a self-finance. I mean, I guess it can be. I guess theoretically you can self-finance. But it is, it's better if, if you, you know, get some other people on the team with you. Especially when you're not a money guy. And by not a money guy, I mean not mean you don't have money. Well, that could be one of the things. But also that you're not good with the financial aspect of things. I'm not a money guy. I'm not a finance guy. So bringing a producer, you know, 99 times out of 100, you're bringing a person who's not a creative but is really good with putting deals together and and that the business aspect of staging a show. At the end of 2011, I'm on Celebrity Apprentice. I do my run the first time out. Well, the first time actually was with with John Rich the season before for the finale. But this is the season I'm on. And when you get fired, got the quotation fingers up there, you know, fake fired from a fake job. So I was only fake bummed out, as I said on uh, Fallon. You get uh, an exit breakfast. And the producers of the show, not Donald Trump, but the producers sit down with you. And, uh, you know, they, and they, they talk, and at that point they asked me, I was the first person they asked to come back for the season finale, which was flattering. You know, they asked the people who uh, brought the most to the table. So that was cool. So they asked me what I was doing next. 
And I said, um, well, I've written a musical and we're getting ready. Now, this is November of 2011. We're getting ready to present it to producers, trying to find a producer because that I've been told by Adam Hunter, the director, is the next step. Now we need a producer. I got a director. Now I need a producer. Paige Feldman, God lover, the lead producer, uh, one of the lead producers on the Celebrity Apprentice back in those days, or she may still be now that they're doing with um, Arnold Schwarzenegger is the word, right? She says, hey, I know a, a Broadway producer. I'll make an introduction for you. I was like, very cool. So Paige introduces me to a man named John Yanover. John Yanover had uh, been involved in over 20 Broadway productions. He had actually been on The Apprentice when the task, not Celebrity Apprentice, he was one of the guest judges when the task, if you remember uh, some of you who are big fans of that show, they had to figure a marketing strategy for the show Memphis, which was a big hit show on Broadway, Memphis. Actually, music written by David Bryan from Bon Jovi. He won Tony Awards for that. Bravo to you, David. And he carries those Tonys, and he has them on his keyboard when they play out live, as well he should. Since he didn't get to write one song in Bon Jovi, he's uh, done quite a bit of theatrical writing and and movie scoring, and he's won a Tony Award for it. So um, bravo, man. Anyways... She connects me with John Yanover. John Yanover informs me, hey, I see a lot of scripts. I'm going to tell you the truth. If it's no good, I'm going to tell you straight out. I said, no problem. Next day, I get an email. I get a lot of scripts. Most of them are shit. This one's great. I want to option it. So now I moved on to the next step. There's so many steps in this journey. There's so many things along the way. And, um, and this was great because... He couldn't finance it solely himself, but he was going to lead produce the show, which would, and he was the business mind that would introduce it to other producers and investors and hopefully raise the money and take the steps to get there. Which obviously he did because this is the second year I'm staging it. And uh, thanks to John Yanover, you know, and his, and, and his efforts to financially get it there. The thing I want to relate to you is if you have an idea, if you have a thought, not just any thought, you know when you get what you consider to be a brilliant idea, a genius idea, a really good idea, you look at the reality of bringing it to fruition. Bring, you know, Bringing the product out to the public, getting it, whatever it is, if it's a product, getting it manufactured, getting it in the stores. When you look at the big picture, it's overwhelming and could completely psych you out. Completely, you can self-discourage yourself just by looking at the mountain, looking at how high that mountain is and what are the chances you're going to get to the top and how many places could you slide back, how many opportunities are for you are there for you to fall for you to fail well if you look at it that way you are never going to go you're never going to pull a trigger you're never going to even try it's the oldest you know remember the movie what about bob i'm old with uh bill murray and richard dreyfus richard dreyfus was a psychiatrist and uh and uh, bill murray was one of his patients and he had, and and the, and the, and Bill Murray was a, just a total mess. And in order to get the guy, could barely leave his house. And and Richard Dreyfus, a psychiatrist, uh, book was all about baby steps. You know, don't look at the full journey. Just look at the step in front of you and take it, and just move slowly through it, step by step. Never looking at the big picture of how far there is to go or how much work there is to be done. Just look at. Just, just, just concern yourself with the next step. And as silly as that movie was, and as basic a concept as that is, that is really the essence of getting any project done. Baby steps. Don't look at the big picture. Try not to. It's like, don't look down, you know? Don't look down. You see how far, how far up you've come? Don't look up either. 
Don't be discouraged. Because if you look up, you will get discouraged. So I'm offered an opportunity from a director to create, start down the path of creating a musical. I go, I write the musical. We come to the next step through the kindness of strangers. Uh, Paige Feldman, who I later asked why she'd introduced me and John Yanover, and she said the sweetest thing. She said, because good guys should know each other. And John is a great guy, uh, and we have become great friends. We are friends, I think, before we are business partners, even though we are business partners. And if this thing was to stop at any point and not continue to move forward, we would remain friends. He's been there for me. I do everything in my power to deliver on every spot for him. He knows that his money is well spent when it's put behind D. Snyder because D. Snyder will do everything he possibly can. I'm talking about myself in the third person. Uh-oh. So we moved on to the next spot, next part of the project. And it's so many, again, baby steps, baby steps, baby steps. Don't think about how much there is there. And we moved to the next step of financing. And we did a reading. And, and we know that's where you they get a room. They get a bunch of actors. You do a little rehearsing, you know, maybe like a week or two. Then you literally, with the scripts in your hands, doing some basic acting, no costumes, you, you know, do a 30 minutes of the show for possible producers, a presentation, and you get some interest. And we continue to build interest. This is now 2012. All right? So I started this idea in 2008. 2011, it becomes a musical. 2012, we are presenting it to possible investors. It isn't until 2014 that we stage it for the first time. We tried to stage it in 2013, in, in 2013 but we just couldn't find that we couldn't, we couldn't just, we couldn't get it together. And all of a sudden we realized we were running out of runway. <laughs> Basically, the holidays are rushing up. It's amazing how fast the holidays come when you're doing a holiday show. You know, you got to start preparing for a holiday show like in January of the year before. So we were trying to put it together. We were looking at locations, 2013. We're looking at locations. We're looking at, uh, we do all kinds of, uh, meeting with advertisers, meeting with marketing people, meeting with, uh, you know, just every element of the project. And I'm starting to see the size of the project and how much and in, in how involved this is to stage a musical. And we run out of time. And we realize, and here, you know, now I've been working since 2008. So it's 2013. Now five years in, five years, and we decide we're going to postpone, and we're not. It's not enough time to stage it in 2013. We're going to go to 2014, and it's easy to say, but the reality is, it's another year. Don't let yourself be discouraged. A career, I I, I view my career as like a I call it like it's a Christmas tree farm, that. In order to have trees to harvest that are 10, 12, 15 years old, because they grow like a foot a year, you know, uh, whatever it is, you've got to keep planting new trees. Because while you're harvesting the other ones, new ones need to be growing or else the farm is empty. You can't just have one idea. You can't be one and done. Now, I'm not telling you that you've, you've got a creative idea or you've got some, a chance you want to take or you want to go back to school or whatever, that you've got to also do a ton of other ideas. No, no, because you're probably, you're, I'm assuming you're working a regular job or something. You've got your other, you have your something paying the bills. This is another project, one tree in particular you're growing to harvest. In my world, I don't have the steady job, so I'm constantly creating new opportunities uh, to make money because I'm self-employed. So it, it's, a, it's a different thing. But in your situation, you're growing that tree. Don't get bogged down in worrying about how long it's taking to get that tree 
to its full size. It's going to take some time. If it's if it's something significant, if you're bringing a new project product to the marketplace, you're developing something. There's research and development. There's all kinds of things. You know, there's a lot of steps between your brainstorm and actually seeing it on the shelves. Same goes here. A lot of steps from my brainstorm. And by the way, I can't tell you what the brainstorm was, but there was a literal brainstorm. Some realization happened to me driving my car where so many of my brainstorms happened. And I was like, oh, man, I've got an idea. And that led to the the concept album, which led to the musical. So now I'm five years in. Now we're looking at six years in before the show is finally coming to the stage. Six years. That's how long it took Twisted Sister to get our first record deal. That was a ridiculous amount of time. An indie deal. And we're staging the show in Chicago. And now I'm seeing how much is involved. I mean, I knew from being in Rock of Ages, I could see the layers but they were already built. It was all, the sets were done, the costumes were done, the you know the, the the choreography was done, the direction was done. It was all just a matter of inserting me into the machine that was already there. Here, from my words scrawled on a piece of paper, well typed on a piece of paper. I'm a really good typist. Um, a little side thing I learned. I mean, now everybody types fast, but uh, but back I took typing. I don't want to get into that. I don't want to get into that. But it came in handy. Now I'm really getting to see the process and the hiring of every department. And it's so much more involved than rock and roll. There is, you know, a music director, orchestrator, who takes the songs that you've written. But now they've got to be put into musical format where if you've seen a musical, there's sometimes talking in between during the songs. There's all kinds of stuff. Things are have a certain rhyme and reason in musical theater. There's costumes. I wrote what I thought the costume should look like. Well, who am I going to get? The show's about a struggling middle-aged, bunch of middle-aged guys who still have a hairband. Who better than Suzette, one of the creators of the 80s hair metal and metal look? So she comes in to do hair, makeup, and costumes. Then we need a set designer. Because I drew, you know, they start out in a, in a, in a crappy little club. Uh, it's one of the, you know, and I had my, I wrote it down. But now somebody's got to create it and make it a function. Here's scene changes. These things have to be functional. So he comes in. Sound. We've got actors, actor musicians who are talking, acting, and singing performing like it's alive in like they're in a club in a, in a, a club environment performing for the audience they face the audience they play their own instruments but there's still music backing them up but they're playing on guitars bass and drums they're singing and they're acting so we need a special sound designer you got to control that sound so there's that level then there's a choreographer you say oh dancing well there is some dancing in the show but Choreography goes beyond dancing. Again, this is, it's, choreography is stage movement. Every bit of movement on the stage is written down, is planned out. So the lights can go there. So, 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 so every, everything is organized. And then you got the lights. You don't just turn a light bulb on the stage like some, you know, like some high school production, a couple of floodlights. If you, you know, and the, and the thing is that when you see a really good show, it's kind of seamless. Unless there's a bombastic part of the show with lighting or set design or whatever, it should be almost like you're not aware of it because it all ties together. It all makes sense. It's all there. So now I'm we're bringing in this department and that every department, and I'm seeing what how my words are now, my, my pages are being dissected. And you, when you do something, when you go from your idea, the crazy idea in your head, to bring it to life, you're going to encounter all these stages. 
And I don't care if it's a a can of Coke. You're going to be bringing in all kind of designing people and marketing people and, you know, all levels. And even when that, that can of Coke is designed and the plan to market it, well, now it's got to be dissected and figure out how it's going to be manufactured and what machine's going to make that thing and how the piece is all going to come together. And there's so many layers. And again, if you look at it, it is so, it's, it's the Himalayas, man. It's like looking at Mount, it's, it's, it just seems so insurmountable. If you allow yourself to be overwhelmed, you will be just that. You will become discouraged and you will give up because you won't be able to conceive of how this could ever be a reality. And you need to not allow yourself to be stopped. You need not to allow yourself to be discouraged. It's not, and when you look at the amount of time, it's not like you're not doing anything. Your, your life is going on. You're doing other things. You're not stop throwing a pause button on your life. You're not stopping functioning as a human being. You're not going, oh my God, six years. How could you go six years? No, it wasn't like I didn't do anything. I, did, I was living my life. This was just another project, a side project, something else that I was developing and, and dealing with. And slowly but surely, it got to the point where we were actually in Chicago in 2014 for nine weeks of performances, eight shows a week, performing Dee Snyder's Rock and Roll Christmas Tale. It came to life. Yet this wasn't even the final step. Because ultimately, in order for a show like this to be a success, it's got to get to Broadway. And then once you have a Broadway run, and, and if you're successful, when you're successful on Broadway, then it starts to get licensed. And then you start to see multiple performances and touring companies going out and doing the show internationally. But it needs that seal of approval from Broadway. But guess what? Broadway won't allow you to just come straight to Broadway. If you do that, they will kill you for the, having the audacity. This is true. They will just just kill you for saying, you think you're better than everybody else, that you just come to Broadway? You have to go out of town first. So you go to Chicago. And you know what? Good thing we did. Because when we saw the critical reviews, when we had an audience, you, know, you write down a joke on a piece of paper five years before, you don't know until you get in front of an audience. Is this thing still funny? And some of the jokes still were. Some of them were hilarious. Others just laid there flat. You need that audience. You need feedback. You need information. So I want to tell you the rest of this journey and where I am right now. Hey, apparently some of my listeners have still been shopping at Amazon without first accessing my personal Amazon banner at Podcast One. By using my unique Amazon banner, you will have access to everything available through Amazon, but they'll pay me a small commission on every purchase you make since I referred you. There's no additional to cost. There's no additional cost to you. The shopping experience is exactly the same, and it's a killer deal because you're supporting my show while you buy. Yay! Look, shop with Amazon and support my podcast at the same time as getting killer holiday deals. It couldn't be easier. Just go to Podcast One and click on Killer Deals in the menu bar. Then select my show, and you'll be directed to my Amazon banner that includes my unique URL, as well as the sponsors who bring you my podcast every week. Click and shop, and when you use my code, you still get all those holiday sale prices. And for all my listeners in Canada and the UK, I've got links for you too, so check it out and buy the products you already planned on purchasing just use my amazon page first and you help out this show i'd appreciate it thanks a lot let's face it social media creates stars and the nick ritchie podcast brings them to the front lines so you can hear how they got there from instagram players and wannabes to reformed hookers and current big time escorts even some dicey celebrity exes we're talking charlie sheen of course no matter who it is nick ritchie and sidekick scooby cut through the red tape and get right down to it as they discuss scandals controversial topics and real life journeys from around the world no secret is safe on the nick ritchie podcast don't miss it subscribe on itunes 
today. And as always, find everything you need right here on PodcastOne.com. That's PodcastOne.com. So after our run in Chicago, when the audience liked it, loved it, 4.5 out of 5 stars user ratings. Unfortunately, in now in movies, in restaurants, user it's everything's about user ratings, not in theater. It still comes down to the review. And we didn't get the good reviews. The smaller papers, we got the good reviews. But in order to get to Broadway, in order to get big, you need the Chicago Tribune. You need the big paper, the respected paper, to give you a rave. You need that quote. I'm a layman when it comes to theater. I go to theater, but I don't really get it. But I know. If I see a show coming to Broadway, it says Chicago Tribune says, I know that's a good thing. I know that's a rave. We didn't get that. So we had relative success, not a smash success in Chicago, but enough of a success to show us there's light at the end of the tunnel. Keep going. Back to the drawing board. And here's it applies to you. Whatever you're doing, it's going to require a good idea. Is That's where it starts. But you're going to find that it needs to be worked and reworked and refined. The essence always stays there. That's what got you on this journey in the first place. This is what made people invest in your property, made people get behind you, jump on the train, so to speak, take the ride with you, commit themselves to you, believe in you. That doesn't mean it's going to be perfect. And it doesn't mean it can't be improved. So you will find yourself after test marketing things and putting it out there and getting user feedback, often going back and reworking, redesigning, reconsidering, improving. And that's exactly what happened with us. Now we have a team of people who believe in it, some great set design people and sound design people and my uh, my orchestrator, Doug Casaros and Suzette. Suzette got the best reviews, by the way, in Chicago. Even in the trash reviews, it stopped to say, Suzette Julo Snyder's outfits were awesome. Thanks a lot. No, but I was, I was proud as hell of her because, you know, whenever there's a wife or a girlfriend involved, everybody thinks it's like Yoko showed up, you know? It's like that spinal tap m- moment, you know, there's no doubly in rock and heavy metal. It, they think, and especially if it's a hot wife or girlfriend, they just look at her and immediately dismiss her. And Suzette, who many of you know, did all the design out, costume designs and stuff for Twisted. She is, she is, I call her the total package. I mean, she really is incredibly gifted, incredibly talented. And I feel in many ways like I've got a truly gifted artist trapped in my house that nobody else can access except me. And my family. When Suzette graduated FIT at 18 years old or 19 years old, she, she started at, uh, at 17. She graduated high school early. Betsy Johnson tried to hire her right out of the school. But she was already working for me. Uh, she's Everybody who's ever worked with her when she on, has had her do makeup, because she's a professional makeup artist, has wanted to hire her full time. But she's been raising my family. So she, and she's just incredible. Okay, I'm just going to give you a little Suzette makeup artist. How good a makeup artist is she? Well, in our house, Halloween's a big deal. And when the kids were young, Suzette would get up at like 5 in the morning on Halloween and make the kids up, whatever they wanted to be. She would make them up so they go to school with the makeup on. And we make a really big deal out of it. My daughter, Cheyenne, was born on Halloween, which is really cool. So one year, Cody... I think he's in first grade, five or six, kindergarten, first grade. He wants to be a devil. Okay, you want to be a devil? Mommy's going to make you a devil. Mommy made him a devil, complete with prosthetic horns. We get a phone call from the school an hour after it starts. Mrs. Snyder, would you please come and get your son? He's terrifying the class. She goes to school to pick him up. The entire class is on one side of the room, and Cody's sitting alone on the other side. She made him look like freaking Satan. He was terrifying to look at. This six-year-old kid. 
She is a really great makeup artist. She works on all my son's uh, movie projects. Any project we work on, it's call Suzette. She's, you know, call mom, call Suzette. She comes in. Because besides being brilliant, she's cheap as hell. And, you know, of course, she's a family member, so we don't have to pay her. Or pay her very little, as in this show. So... I lost track of the. Uh, I lost track of where I was on that. But but basically, you get together this team of people, this incredibly talented team of people, and now you've got more people believing in you. You're further along on the journey, and if you glance up for a minute and you go, "Oh my God, I still have so far to go," because it didn't go where it needed to go in Chicago. So now we've got to restage again. We've got to go to another regional theater, another theater town, and we go rewrite, and I get rid of a character, and I bring in a new character. And by the way, under the tutelage of my son, Cody, who's a brilliant writer-director, young writer-director, he did script analysis and says, Pops, this is where you're you're falling short. You're lacking this. You're lacking that. So I go back as a writer, and I create – I fill these holes – in a story, we throw out a song, we add two new songs, and we decide Toronto is our target market. And we come to Toronto, Canada, and we connect with a local production company, a local producer, who does quirky shows. And there, that should have been the red flag. Because even though this show is quirky in that it's a rock and roll Christmas tale. It's about a struggling rock band who sell their soul for rock and roll. Not traditional Christmas fodder. At its core, it is still a holiday musical. Its theme, the story within the story is like any great Christmas, any any of the great Christmas stories all the same thing. Go to Christmas Carol, go to A Christmas Story, go to Christmas Vacation, go to The Grinch, go to any of these great movies, and they all the same same thing. Appreciate what you have. Every one of these movies, the character, lead character, is looking for something unobtainable that he thinks is going to make the difference, that he thinks is going to change things for him, that he thinks he or she thinks is going to make them truly happy. And the realization they have, it's a wonderful life, is the perfect example, is just that. Everything I want is here. All this other stuff is the trappings. It's it's the toppings. It's the extras. And yeah, they're nice to have. But they aren't going to make you truly happy. The things to make you truly happy are often right around you. And that's the story. And that's, that's the story within the story. Here's this band willing to do anything for success, not realizing that they have everything they want right there. So we bring in this quirky production company who do quirky shows. They come on board because they think we're a quirky show. We can't get the traditional theater uh, gods up here in Toronto, the Mervishes, to take on our show because they think we're a quirky show. But we're a traditional show disguised as a quirky show needing to be sold as a traditional show. Well, the quirky production company comes in and the problems start. And the road to getting the show staged was hell. Every single interface between us and the production company was terrible. I had the top pros working for me in every department, and they had rank amateurs on their side. Their quirky shows, they almost were goofs. I saw one of them. They weren't really quality, but they kind of played off the fact that they were uh, uh, kind of just throwaway in a lot of, in a lot of ways. And they're successful. They had successful shows, but that wasn't our show. That's not the rock and roll Christmas tale. And then came the biggest fuck up of all, and that is advertising the show. When you have Dee Snyder on the show, 
and Taylor Dane, who, by the way, is in the show as well. It seems an easy promotion to just go after, promote that Dee Snyder's in the show, and that's going to bring the people in. Well, guess what? It's a blessing and a curse because there are people who are fans, but then I also bring with me the baggage of a very definitive image. And while you, my podcast listeners, know me as being a far more capable person than the average person, most people, even if they like me, have sort of got me, and I talked about this at another show, they've got me sort of figured out. Yeah, he's, you know, heavy metal guy, crazy guy, bone, iconic, yeah. We're not gonna, he's not going to take it. Awesome. And that doesn't connect for them with family musical. And the production company and the advertising and marketing people thought, hey, let's just put these picture everywhere. And they kind of did this in Chicago as well, but not as much. Hence, better better response in Chicago. And they just put my picture up on these banners and billboards with Rock and Roll Christmas Tale. And the catchphrase they came up with was the best Christmas party in town. Well, if you see my picture, Rock and Roll Christmas Tale and the best Christmas party in town, what do you think it is? Well, guess what? Nobody knew what it was. Nobody knew what it was, and ticket sales were abysmal, and they have been abysmal. The marketing campaign completely flopped, and the audiences were in a theater of a 1,000, and were playing to a couple hundred, two, three hundred, and a lot of that is, is paper. They call it papering, where you give away tickets. Standing ovation every night. Anybody who comes loves it, and they all say the same thing. I didn't know what to expect. I didn't expect that. I didn't expect that's a major problem. So every there's so many steps in this journey, and there's so many places where it could fuck up. And as you get every single spot correct along the way, every now and then you run into the fucked up part, and now you got to fix it. We came out of this. The show is now closing early, two weeks early, for lack of sales. But guess what? We got the killer review. The Toronto Star is one of those papers that you see on Broadway. It says, Toronto Star says, and that's gold. We needed the great review. We had nothing to show. We had no ticket sales to show. We had the show was was so much better than Chicago with the improvements we made because now the whole show is really coming together. And the toughest critic, they call him the Uzi, Richard Uzuzian. Well, that's where the Uzi comes from. Apparently hates everything, which is why he's so respected. What is the deal with that? And the critics who hate everything are the ones people respect. It's like your dad who never gives you a damn compliment when he, and you like can't stand him, but when he says, good job, son, you're just like all just, you're all gushy inside because daddy said you're good. But everybody expected him to, to hate the show. He loved it. But we're closing early because nobody knows. And, and this is, this is the, the key. Listen to this. Okay. I'm in the booth trying to read something by the light. He said, this is what he said. Let me be perfectly honest and tell you that I wasn't looking forward to this show. The mashup, that's like mixing formats, isn't my favorite art form. And the thought of Snyder, the twisted sister frontman, larking around through Yuletide material didn't exactly flip the dial on my peace on earth goodwill toward men meter. But I was wrong. That defined the problem. That we had. He didn't know what it was. They had to force him to come. He wasn't even going to come to review the show. He was forced. Can you imagine? The nastiest reviewer is basically, they bent his arm to come. He walks in there with a chip on his shoulder and we flip him. He loves it. A full half page in a New York Times style paper about how amazing the show was. 
but we are still on the journey. We are still, we are another step closer, but we're not there yet. So now we've got the show. The show works. The show's polished. We've got all the players. We know we need a new uh, producing partner, but now how do we get this great idea to the masses? That's the next step. So here I am, 2015, 2008, I wrote this thing. I started writing it. Now I'm looking at Christmas 2016 because we can't do anything until then. And I don't know what the next step is. Are we going to Broadway yet? I don't know. Are we going to take it on tour? Are we going to another city? And I ain't getting any younger. And in 2016, that's going to be eight years, which is a magic number for me because that's how long it took Twisted Sister to break. I'm just thinking about that. Eight freaking years. But I love this project. I believe in this project. I see signs of life everywhere I go. I've got people with me on the journey, and these are the things that you need on your journey. Because if you can't get others to believe in you, if you don't see any signs of life, if you don't get some positive feedback from people about your idea, that's when you get out. But as long as you continue to get, move forward, even if you keep getting knocked down, as long as you get back up and moving forward and you're getting some feet, you're getting some head nods, some people going, yeah, thumbs up, yeah, you're onto something, yeah, this works. Forget about how long it's taking. Forget about how momentous, how monumental the effort will be. Just stay on the journey. Baby steps, Bob. Baby steps. All the way to the mountaintop. I'll see you next week for the holidays. Some more Snyder comments. Stay tuned for the latest AP News headlines from Podcast One right after this. When shopping for car insurance, consider this. GEICO has been saving people money on car insurance for over 75 years. So if you're serious about savings, it's simple. Go to GEICO.com. After 75 years, they know how to save you money. AP Update. I'm Sandy Kozell. Polls are opening across New Hampshire for the nation's first presidential primary. And that means it's time for Granite State undecided voters to make a choice, as we hear from the AP's Jerry Bodlander. Voters here in New Hampshire are known for waiting until the last minute before deciding who they're pulling the lever for or changing their minds about who they're supporting. Gloria Fields is choosing between Donald Trump and Jeb Bush. Trump because of his business ability. Bush because of what he has done in Florida. Field says she may not decide who she's supporting until she's in the voting booth. All this uncertainty makes polling more difficult, and on top of that, independent voters can vote in either the Republican or Democratic primary. Jerry Bodlander, Manchester, New Hampshire. Polls show Clinton trailing Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders. She started her day at 7 a.m. at a Manchester polling location. AP Update, I'm Sandy Kozell.